this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Uh, that's what uh, the cowboys used to say in the uh, westerns I watched with my dad growing up. This town just ain't big enough for the two of us. You, know, you see the, the two cowboys meeting one another in the centre of, of town. I want to run this town, you want to run this town, so one of us has to go. And you know, it led, led into a bit of a duel about who was going to rule the town. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. Uh, in a similar way, uh, the world we live in is only really big enough for one true God, capital G, God. Uh, otherwise, uh, there's a sense in which I want to run it, you want to run it, uh, you want to run it, so one of us has to go. And that's why building genuine, loving, caring human community uh, is really hard. Human communities really, uh, caring communities really hard to find, but because all of us, in the end, want to be God. It's like the, the atheist philosopher uh, Sartre, John Paul Sartre, when I was studying existentialism all those years ago. Who would have known it would have come in useful? Uh, but Sartre said, man is the being whose lifelong project is to be God. You know, he obviously, as an atheist, believed that God uh, didn't exist in reality, uh, and so we just replace God with ourselves. Man is the being whose lifelong project is to be God. And you might say, well, that's not true of me. You know, sure, some people are really quite self-centred. Some people are very egocentric, even narcissistic. But not little old me. I don't want to be God. You know, I only bought one packet of toilet paper, not a pack of 24, you know. But you do want to be God. I want to be God. By nature, all of us kind of position ourselves at the very centre of our universe. We want everyone and everything to revolve around me and my needs rather than around you and your needs. We want to live, uh, we want to make a name for ourselves, as the people of the Tower of Babel did. Let's make a name for ourselves. We want to establish our own little kingdom in which our will is always done, right? Not, not just by me, but by you. Our own little empire. And we want our will be to, uh, to be done because we're utterly convinced that the world would be a better place if only people would listen to me, if only I was in control. Man is the being whose lifelong project is to be God, and so human community is ruined. Because in our pride, all of us want to be number one, want to be at the centre all of us want to be God. So there's always going to be tension and conflict and, and division and strife and war as individuals and communities constantly battle with one another to be God, to be the top chook, as Adam spoke about last week. So when Jesus builds his church, you remember back in chapter 16, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. When Jesus builds his church, he knows that he must destroy pride. If his church is going to be a community that cares for one another, he must destroy pride. And that's the big idea in today's passage, right? We'll only be able to care for one another in our church if we destroy pride in our church. Right? We'll only be able to care for one another in our church if we destroy pride in our church. Now, before we look at the kind of specific details of verses 6 to 14, it is, it's kind of worth noting that verses 1 to 14 are a bit of a, they're kind of one big unit. 
Uh, there's lots of connections between this, but there are three uh, kind of repeated ideas that run through this whole section. Uh, so you'll see that there's the repeated idea of little child or, or, or little ones. If you scan, if you've got your uh, verses 1 to 14 open, it's in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, and 14. Little child or little ones. Right? Uh, different words, but a similar idea. And then you've got the idea of entering or not entering God's kingdom, uh, of coming into eternal life or coming into eternal judgment. That's there in verses 3, uh, five, uh, three 8, 9, and 14. Different ideas, different metaphors for entering or not entering the kingdom of God. And then you've got a kind of repeated change of perspective going on, where Jesus keeps contrasting how we view and treat ourselves with how we view and treat others. So we saw last week in verses 1 to 5 that if you view yourself, sorry, if you kind of humble yourself, view yourself, as being humble and lowly, like a child, uh, then you'll welcome others who are humble and lowly, in particular children. That's verses 1 to 5. How you view yourself influences how you view and treat others. And in verses 6 to 14, we'll see that it's only as we deal with what might be causing us to stumble that we'll be able to avoid causing our brothers and sisters to stumble. Jesus is kind of driving home this connection between how we view and treat ourselves and how we view and treat one another. The basic idea is that Jesus humbles me so that I can care for you and Jesus humbles you so that you can care for me. So let's look at this passage in in more detail. In verse 6, we care for one another by not causing one another to stumble. Look at, the, look at verse 6 there. Uh, Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, uh, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, little ones here doesn't refer uh, to ch- children, kind of literal children. Uh, it refers to every Christian. Right, to every Christian. Jesus singles that with that change of language I mentioned just before. In verses 1 to 5, uh, he talked about little child, uh, which is the Greek word pideon, uh, which is where we get our word pediatrics. You go to see a pediatrician, that's because they work with kids, right? That's pideon, little child in verses 1 to 5. Uh, but from verse 6 and onwards, Jesus talks about little ones. Uh, these are the microns. As opposed to the megas, right? The disciples back in verse one, uh, verse one, wanted to know who was the mega one. You know, who was the greatest? Uh, but Jesus says, no, no, no. My disciples are little ones. They're micros. They're the ones who've humbled themselves, who've made themselves lowly. Right? Jesus is talking about every single Christian uh, when he refers to these little ones. He's re- uh, and the NIV kind of explains that, doesn't it? It says, those who've humbled themselves and believed in the word of Jesus. Uh, you can chase it up also back in chapter 10, verse 42, Matthew 10, verse 42. Jesus refers to all of his disciples as little ones. Uh, so here in verse 6, Jesus isn't just uh, saying that, that we've got to be careful about causing children to stumble, uh, but he's saying that we can actually cause uh, our fellow Christians to stumble. Well, what does that mean? I think it means we can live in a way that might hinder a fellow Christian, that might cause them to trip up in the Christian life. 
Uh, Maybe we cause a fellow Christian uh, to have unnecessary doubts about their faith. Uh, Maybe our actions, our behaviour causes a fellow Christian to be offended, not because of the offence of the gospel, but because our behaviour is so offensive. You've known people who used to go to church like that. They came to church and a Christian treated them in such an offensive way that they've rejected the gospel. It's not because they found the gospel message offensive, it's because the people were offensive. So we're living in a way that, in such a way that a brother or sister hardens their heart, that they fall into sin, and their sin sets them on a path of stumbling towards God's judgment rather than walking with Christ towards eternal life. That's the idea in this passage. And now, of course, your brother or sister is still responsible for their own actions. It's not like they can just go, well, that person made me do it, so I'm off the hook. No, they're responsible for their actions, but you're responsible for the contribution you made to their actions. Perhaps it's like uh, if you gave your car keys to a friend that's drunk. You're not responsible for what they do when they drive the car drunk but you are responsible for the contribution you made to their drunk driving. And because each and every Christian is precious to God, Jesus says it's very serious to cause a fellow Christian to stumble. Very serious. He says, if you cause a fellow Christian to stumble, it would be better for you. It would be to your benefit, Jesus says, to have a large millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea to drown. That's pretty intense. That's how serious this is. In Jesus' day, these millstones were used to to grind up things like wheat or or olives, perhaps. And this one uh, Jesus is referring to, actually, while I was reading this, I was like, it's actually a word related to the word for donkey. Uh, They translate it as a large millstone, so we don't kind of, it doesn't help us so much to go a donkey's millstone. But the the idea is that this is a stone that's so big that it could only be pulled around by a donkey in the mill, and the donkey would pull it around and it would grind up the wheat. So this is a very, very large millstone. And Jesus is saying that if you, you cause a fellow Christian to stumble, it would be, it's so serious that it would be better for you to have one of these millstones hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea, which is very, very intense. Right? Why is Jesus so full on about it? Well, because for causing another Christian to stumble uh, is causing them to sin. And in the end, sin is what excludes people from God's kingdom. So if our actions contribute to a brother or sister being put on the path of proudly rebelling against God rather than humbly surrendering to God, uh, then that's very serious. It's very serious. Now, let me be clear, uh, despite how graphic Jesus' language is here, I'm absolutely convinced that he's not saying that a Christian can lose their salvation over causing a brother or sister to stumble. It's very serious. Every single Christian is precious to God, but we are saved by repenting and trusting in Jesus alone ourselves. The point of Jesus' teaching here is to say, yes, we're saved by faith in Jesus alone, but we're not saved alone. We're saved into God's people. And every single one of God's people is incredibly precious. Incredibly precious. 
So we, one way we can care for one another is by doing all we can not to cause one another to stumble. Uh, by being humble enough to forget about ourselves and our own preferences and be mindful of our brother or sister in Christ. Well, we tend to, to kind of be a bit blinkered and just think, well, I'm going to do this and not even consider how it might affect others. Well, Jesus is saying, in my community, things work differently. We have an eye on one another. We care for one another. We love one another. We set our interests aside for the sake of keeping our brother or sister on the path to eternal life. So that's the, that's the first thing. Jesus' next point, now this is what the whole idea of humbling ourselves, kind of forgetting about ourselves and looking to the interests of our brothers and sisters, that leads to the next point, verses 7 to 9, where we see we can care for one another in our church by watching ourselves ruthlessly. Why? What's the reason for watching ourselves ruthlessly? Because in the end, uh, it's only uh, as we get rid of what's causing us to stumble that we can avoid causing a brother or sister to stumble. Look in verse 7. Jesus says, Woe to the world uh, because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Right, woe to the world, Jesus. When Jesus says woe to the world there, he's not talking about the physical world, the, you know, the, the creation that we live in. He's talking about uh, all of um, proud, kind of sinful humanity uh, in rebellion against God. That, that's the world in the Bible. And he says woe to the world uh, because they're always throwing stumbling blocks in the path of, of Christians. Well, that's true. It's, it's quite hard, increasingly hard, to live as a Christian in our world. The world's constantly throwing things in your path that, that might cause you to doubt or to stumble or to turn away from Christ and his kingdom. Woe to the world. It's sad that we live in a world like that. That's what Jesus is saying. Woe to the world. In fact, the world's throwing so many stumbling blocks in our path, we could do without our brothers and sisters throwing stumbling blocks too. That's kind of Jesus' point. It's bad enough that the world does it. You kind of expect that. But let's not have brothers and sisters throwing stumbling blocks uh, before one another. Uh, so Jesus' message in verses 8 and 9 is that if we want to avoid causing a brother or sister to stumble, uh, then we need to, to watch ourselves ruthlessly. Watch ourselves for whatever it is that's causing us to stumble. Verse 8, he says, if your hand, right, that's the thing you kind of do things with, uh, kind of activity, if your hand uh, or if your foot, the, the thing you stand with or go places with, if either your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, Jesus says, cut them off and throw them away. It's that, it's that easy, right? It, it's, it's, like it's very graphic language that Jesus uses in this passage. Talking about maiming yourself. Entering into eternal life maimed or, or, or crippled. Right? It sounds like Jesus is advocating self-harm, doesn't it? It sounds like that, but it's not actually self-harm. It's self-care. It's self-care. Jesus says, it's better for you. If you do this, you'd be caring for yourself. It's beneficial for you to enter life maimed or crippled all right, to enter into eternal life with God, maimed or crippled, it's better for you to have that than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into uh, eternal fire. 
this is this is a, a real good strategy of self-care to be ruthless with sin. Likewise, in verse nine, Jesus says, "If your eye causes you to uh, to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away." Why? Because it's a way of caring for yourself. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. We care for ourselves, we care for one another, first and foremost, by watching ourselves ruthlessly. What are we watching ourselves for? Well, on one level, we're watching ourselves for anything that might be causing us to stumble. But is Jesus talking about anything in particular here? Uh, You might remember, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5 to 7, Jesus uses almost exactly the same language as this, uh, you know, kind of cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes, uh, back in Matthew 5, uh, verses 29 to 30. uh, And there he's clearly talking about lust. It's in the context of adultery and lust, and he talks about it in that context. Here, Jesus is not talking about lust, at least not primarily. Here, Jesus is talking about something much more serious, much more insidious. He's talking about pride. He's talking about how we deal with pride in our lives as Christians. I think the context makes that very clear. So in verses 1 to 5, what's the issue? Jesus confronts the pride of his disciples. They're concerned about who's the greatest in God's kingdom. Who's number one? Who's first? Who's the center around which everything else revolves? Uh, And Jesus says, no, 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 you've got it wrong. My kingdom's not about pride. It's about humility. It's not about being a mega one, the greatest. It's about being a micron, a little one. And then in verse 10, Just after these verses, Jesus says to his disciples, you mustn't despise any of these people. What kind of person despises others? Someone who's proud, right? Someone who looks down their nose at others, who scorns them, who scoffs at them, who assumes that they're somehow better than other people. Jesus is calling us in verses 8 and 9 to watch ourselves ruthlessly for pride, Why? Because he's building his church and he knows that it's pride that will destroy relationships in his church. It's pride that says, I'm important and you're not. I'm significant and you're not. I'm impressive and you're not. My opinion matters and yours doesn't. It's pride that says that. Perhaps you're saying the same about me. If our church is full of pride, uh, it will destroy our relationships. And so Jesus' message in verses 7 to 9 is either we destroy pride or pride destroys the church. We destroy pride, destroy pride, or pride destroys the church. I'm not saying verses 8 and 9 are only about pride. Right? Clearly the, the principles here could be applied to any sin and we ought to be ruthless with any sin in our lives. Sin separates us from God, the source of all life. It brings spiritual and physical death. Uh, And so if you're not being ruthless with sin, sin will be being ruthless with you. Uh, So verses 8 and 9 aren't only about pride, but they are primarily about pride. Uh, So I want to take some time to to, uh, think about what does a proud hand and foot and eye look like? If we're going to be ruthless with these things, what, what does a proud hand and eye and foot look like? If you consider a proud hand, 
Uh, maybe you could take this in different ways, but I, I think a proud, I want to suggest that a proud hand is a hand that's constantly grasping for things that aren't its to have. Grasping for, for power or influence or authority, perhaps. I was thinking about this during the week and I couldn't help but think about Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, they're not just grasping for fruit, they're grasping for power and influence and authority that's not theirs to have. They want to be like God. They want to call the shots. They want to define what's right and wrong for themselves, not trust God's definition. And we see these proud hands in all sorts of ways. We see it in our kids. God calls children to humbly submit to, to respect their parents. But our kids, for the most part, are utterly convinced that our homes would be far better if only we as parents listened to them, if they were in control. Either they're proud hands, grasping for authority that's not theirs to have. It's not, just, it's not much better amongst us adults. You see it in every workplace. Most workers in workplaces are very convinced that if only they were in control instead of their boss, then that process or that procedure or all sorts of things would be functioning so much better. If only I was the boss. And so people grumble and complain and rebel against their boss. We see it in society where we're called to respect those who are over us, submit to our governing authorities. Uh, but most of us think that if we had five minutes with our premier or our local member or, or the president of the United States, that we'd be able to tell them exactly how they should do their job. All of us have these proud hands, I think, grasping for authority that's not ours to have. And maybe you'd expect that in the world that, that's full of stumbling blocks. Woe to the world, Jesus says. But it should be different in the church. And sadly, often it's not. Maybe because we're not ruthless enough with our pride. God calls us to respect those who are over us in the Lord. And to humbly submit to them. But all of us, including myself, we constantly chafe against those who have authority over us. Frustrated by them. Why doesn't my ministry team leader get it? This area of ministry would be so much better if I was in control. This microphone's doing something strange anyway. Maybe it's only bothering me. Can we think about ministry team leaders? Why, well, why doesn't my gospel community leader know how to run a Bible study as well as I would run it? Doesn't the board of management know that they got that completely wrong? Uh, I wish I could t give them a piece of my mind. You know, don't, don't even get me started on the elders, you know. We struggle with proud hands. We struggle to, to not constantly grasp for authority that's not ours to have, at least at this time. I struggle with, with it in the, in the kind, of, kind of hierarchy of the Presbyterian denomination. You know? Jesus says we've got to be ruthless with our proud hands. We've got to get rid of them. I'm not saying that we can't respectfully speak with our leaders. Please speak to me. I'm not saying we can't influence them or challenge them or even openly disagree with them. We can do all those things. But if we see any evidence of this proud hand that's grasping for things that aren't ours to have, then we must be ruthless with it.
We must pray that God would give us humble hands like Jesus. Now read Philippians 2 later on. Jesus, who did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped at our expense, but instead humbled himself all the way to his death on the cross. That's a humble hand. We need to pray that we'd have those kind of hands. Uh, what about a proud foot? Uh, much briefer on these ones. Uh, a foot. Uh, a foot's about who you, uh, where you go, or who you stand with. Uh, so I just want to ask: after church, uh, who do you stand with? Who do you stand with? Do you only stand with people that you think are important, that you think are cool, or, or are somehow worthy of your time? Or do you only go towards, go across the room to people uh, who have a certain level of status in our community? Do you only go to people who can have something to offer you? Do you only go to people who can pay you back in some way? If you answer yes to some of those things, uh, you can join the club of those who have proud feet. But I'm in it sometimes. And we must be ruthless with those sort of feet, praying that God would give us humble feet like Jesus, who, if you read the Gospels, was always seen standing with the outsider, standing with the one on the margins, you see going to the one that society would consider to be weak and insignificant and unimpressive. We must pray that we would have these humble feet. And and what about proud eyes? An eye is about what you're focused on. It's about your goals and dreams and ambitions. And the person with the proud eye is the person whose goals and visions and, and dreams and ambitions for life are completely focused on themselves. And no room for anyone else. And they just want to be first. They want to be number one. They want to make a name for themselves. Uh, three John, uh, third John is a letter that we don't read very often. Three John, verse nine. Uh, John speaks about a guy named Diotrephes, who we hear nothing else about in the Bible, as far as I'm aware. But what we do know about Diotrephes uh, is that he loved to be first. That's his, you know. <laughs> That's his reputation. Uh, That's it in the Bible. He loved to be uh, first and in the process he was destroying relationships in the church. Uh, So the proud eye in the church uh, is the eye that's only focused on the people who can elevate your position, who can increase your level of influence perhaps, who can maximise your time in the spotlight. We have to be ruthless with proud eyes. Praying that God would give us humble eyes, like Jesus, who always had an eye for the person who was on the edge, the person who was a little bit dysfunctional or a bit weird, who didn't quite fit in, whose society would have considered to be a nobody. We care for one another by watching ourselves ruthlessly for pride. And in verses 10 to 14, we we care for one another by watching one another lovingly. It's important to get this in order. We watch ourselves ruthlessly first, and then if we're doing a good job of doing that, hopefully we'll be humble enough to watch over a brother or sister. Watch one another lovingly. Why? Because every single one of us is precious to our Heavenly Father. That's the reason. That's repeated three times in this section. Verse 10, uh, Jesus says, See, watch, make sure you get this, Jesus is saying. Watch that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
So imagine for a second, someone uh, comes into church, uh, maybe for the first time, maybe they're a regular, a a regular, not irregular, a regular. And in the eyes of the world, uh, this is a person that would be considered to be a nobody. Uh, They're socially awkward, they're not very educated, they, they don't have a job, they don't have much money. They're not a very interesting person, not a great conversationalist. And on top of that, they don't even drink coffee. You know, uh, sorry, you know maybe it's a light, too light a moment, right? But you, you get the idea. This is a person who, in the eyes of the world, would be considered to be a nobody. In our pride, Jesus is saying we might be tempted to despise that person. Now, you might not put that word on it, but we might be tempted to, to at least think. I don't want to give that person the time of day. I'm glad that other person is talking to them because I'd never do that. There's a form of despising in that, scoffing at them as if I'd ever give them any of my time or energy. So we're tempted to see this dear brother or sister, one who is precious to our Heavenly Father, as nothing more than a nuisance, to, a nuisance to put up with, rather than a precious brother or sister to love. And that's a problem, Jesus says, because it puts us hopelessly out of step with, the, with our Father. Jesus says that attitude has no place in his church. Right? That person is precious to God our Father. And Jesus makes that point three times, just in verses 10 to 14, just in case, like me, uh, you, you're a little bit slow. Uh, it takes a while to get things. So Jesus drums at home three times. First, in verse 10, he says, We shouldn't despise uh, any other Christian because their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, I'm sure you all read that verse and thought, well, that makes perfect sense. Uh, it's, I mean, no one really knows what that verse means, uh, I think. Um, it's, it's quite confusing. But uh, probably Jesus is saying uh, that even the most insignificant Christian is represented by angels in the throne room of God. Uh, I think that's what he's saying. And this idea, it's throughout the Bible, the idea that angels uh, can represent people. If you look in Daniel chapters 10 and 12, you've got angels fighting off in kind of representing nations. Uh, In Revelation 2 and 3, you've got angels representing different churches. Uh, And in Hebrews 1 verse 14, uh, God is said to send angels to minister to his people. Now, I'm not wanting to kind of get us caught up in kind of developing a, a sophisticated thing where each and every person has their own little guardian angel. Right? I'm not kind of, you know, you want to build a, a kind of comprehensive theology about angels from one verse that very few people understand. That would be unwise. But I think what this is saying is that even the most insignificant Christian, that the one that we might consider to be a nobody, that we might be tempted to despise, is a somebody in the throne room of God. That's the point, that they have an angelic representation before God. So who are we to look down our nose at them, to despise one who is precious to our Father? That's Jesus' first reason. You'll notice that verse 11 isn't there. I won't bore you with kind of details about why it is and that kind of thing, but the basic idea is it's not there because the oldest and most reliable copies of Matthew chapter 18 don't include it. And so people think it was probably added in later on when someone was copying it, probably to try and make it match up with something later on in the chapter. If you've got questions about how that works, you can come and speak to me. 
verses 12 and 13, Jesus gives his second reason why every Christian is precious to God. Uh, he, he talks, uh, he kind of establishes it by this parable of the wandering sheep. Uh, you mustn't confuse this uh, with the parable of the lost sheep. It's probably the more familiar one in Luke 15. Uh, the, the parable of the lost sheep uh, is about God's love for the person who's not a Christian, his desire to bring them into his people. He'll pursue them and save them. Right? The, the parable of the wandering sheep is about his love for the Christian who's wandered, the Christian who's gone astray from his flock, who he wants to pursue and, and save and, and bring back to his people. So Jesus, like all uh, good preachers, he's got you know, one illustration and he can use it in lots of different ways. There you go, Luke 15 and uh, Matthew 18. And so Jesus says, think about it. Think about this. What's an owner going to do if one of his 100 sheep goes missing? Now, you might have your own answers to that. You know, he's already got 99, a bird in the hand's better than, you know, what in the bush or that kind of thing. But that's not, the, that's not this one, right? This owner's going to find it. Why? Because all of his sheep are precious to him. This owner doesn't say, well, I'm pleased to see the back of that sheep. You know, they were a pain in the neck anyway. They were quite stupid. They were mostly a detractor from the flock. Uh, and so we're happy to see the back of them. We might be tempted to say that about another Christian who wanders from our church. But not God. God pursues the wandering sheep as far as he can. He finds the wandering sheep and he brings the sheep back with joy. Why? Because every Christian is precious to him. And if we haven't already got it, Jesus says it again in verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. All of us matter to God. He doesn't want any of us to perish. So that should be our attitude to one another. We should care for one another enough to actually notice when a brother or sister wanders from the flock. When a brother or sister is perhaps getting... in entangled in sin or being led astray by false teaching when a brother or sister is hardening their heart to God's words. God forbid that we would despise someone who is precious to our Heavenly Father. That would be a horrible thing, to despise one who is so precious that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus was shed for them. How horrible to despise such a one. Uh, imagine that you went to a, a, a very uh, big party. Uh, I don't know why you got an invite there, but you know you got an invite to this big party, and for whatever reason, there's a very famous celebrity at the party, uh, someone you really kind of love and you've always wanted to meet them. Uh, you can see them across the crowd. It's a very crowded room, not during coronavirus, you know, people bumping up uh, next to one another. And uh, you see the person across the room, you're pushing through the crowd to get to the famous person. And then some, uh, some scruff, some nobody pushes into your path. And you're like, who do you think you are? You just push them out of the way, trample over them, get over towards the famous person. But then, shock, you, you, you see the, the famous person coming towards the person that you've just pushed aside. And, and, the, and the scruff, the nobody, says, hi, Dad. Thanks for having me. That would be a bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? A bit of a social faux pas. 
to have pushed aside a child of the Father. God forbid that we would push aside, that we would trample, that we would despise one who is precious to our Heavenly Father. And so I might not matter that much to you. I might annoy you. I might frustrate you. You might even sometimes despise me. I'm not, but you know. But whatever you think of me, I'm precious to our Heavenly Father. And so if you despise me and cause me to stumble, you actually despise our Heavenly Father because you despise what is precious to Him. If I despise you and cause you to stumble, I despise our Heavenly Father because I despise what is precious to Him. On the other hand, if you lovingly care for me, committing yourself to to watching over me, uh, then we echo the love of our Heavenly Father. And if I lovingly care for you and commit myself to watching over you, then I echo the love of our Heavenly Father. God calls us to lovingly watch over one another in the church. What does that look like in practice? I just want to suggest three things. You might want to talk about it more over, over supper. Uh, First, uh, if we're going to lovingly care for one another, we have to know one another. We have to know one another. And it's nearly impossible to know everyone here at church. There's a few people away today, understandably. But church is getting bigger. And it's very, very hard to know everyone. So that's why we encourage people quite strongly, please join a small group, a gospel community, where you can be known and where people can know you where people can actually look out for you. If we're going to lovingly care for one another, we actually have to know one another. Uh, The second thing is, if we're going to lovingly care for one another, uh, we actually have to be here. Today's a bit exceptional, isn't it? The coming weeks. But in general, you have to actually be somewhere to be able to care for other people around you. I'm sure we're all tempted sometimes to think, I can't be bothered going to church, or I can't be bothered going to gospel community. And I totally understand that. I feel that way myself sometimes. But, you know, you guys pay me to be here, so I figure I should turn up. No, um, but look, we all feel that sometimes. But let me encourage you, when you do feel like that, come along, not for your sake, but for your brother or sister's sake. Say to yourself, I don't feel like being there today, but I want to be there because I want to see if the people from my gospel community are there. And if they're not there, I'm going to ask, why not? Not in a kind of big brother, I'm going to smack you over the wrist kind of way, but in a way that I actually care about you. I noticed that you weren't there. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they're suffering. Maybe they're wandering from Christ. I don't know. But at least if you're here, you'll notice if they're not here and you can look out for them. You can send them a text message. You can pray for them. You can drop over a meal. You can actually lovingly care for them. I'm saying this because this is on all of us to care for one another. The pastors and leaders of the, this church, uh, um, we, we, we do the best job that we can. But in the end, it, it, there's just going to be too many people for us to care for uh, people alone. This is on all of us to care for one another. And the third thing, if we're going to lovingly care for one another, uh, I think we need to be aware of times uh, that are spiritually dangerous. Be aware of times that are spiritually dangerous. 1 Peter 5, Peter says that the devil's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for a chance to devour a Christian. 
to pounce on a Christian. And typically, one of the things the devil... I mean, I'm not kind of in the devil's strategy meetings, uh, but typically, one of the things I think the devil's looking for are times of change and transition. Those are times uh, of opportunities for real growth for a Christian, but also opportunities for wandering. If you've worked in university student ministry, you'll understand this. University holidays are a challenging time for uni students. Maybe that's you. you know, you've know, you had a, a, a kind of wonderful community on campus, then all of a sudden it all goes. It's a time of change and you're spiritually vulnerable. Maybe you're moving towns. You're not sure which church you'll settle in yet. It's a great opportunity for growth, but it's also a time of vulnerability. Maybe you're graduating from uni and all of a sudden you're going to have more money than you've ever had in your whole life. Wonderful opportunity for growth, but a, great, a, a, a bad opportunity to wander from Christ too. Retirement's the same. You could become self-absorbed and think, I've earned my way here and it's just all about me from now on. Having your first child's difficult. Getting married is an interesting, a, a tough transition for some. Maybe you get a, a new job, a, a great promotion, and now you think, well, perhaps I am the greatest. You get an inheritance. Someone you love dies. Right? All these uh, kind of changes and transitions in life are opportunities for real growth, but they're also opportunities for wandering. And so we've got to look out for one another. We've got to be alert to these times. Not just naively think that everything will just go on fine. So I think this is a pretty timely word for our church uh, in the kind of medium term, perhaps in particular in the short term. There's going to be opportunities for us to put on display our love for one another, to care for one another, even in the midst of this virus, to consider, my gospel community is not happening for a couple of weeks, I can't get to the online thing, how can I stay in touch with people? Can I text people in my group, ask them what I can pray for them? Is someone actually sick? They need to self-isolate. Can I drop groceries over to their door? In the short term, this is a timely word for us as a church. How are we going to be a community in which we humbly care for one another? But in the medium term even, as I said, there's just too many people here on Sundays for the kind of pastoral staff to be responsible for caring for one another. What we need is a kind of, a kind of all-hands-on-deck approach to pastoral care where we all take responsibility for caring for one another, for each one of us is precious to our Heavenly Father. And so we commit ourselves to being a community in which we watch ourselves ruthlessly for pride and which we watch one another lovingly for wandering. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we do sense that it is a timely word, uh, both in the immediate term as we... Uh, grapple with uh, this situation that we're facing with the uh, COVID-19. Uh, we pray that at this time we wouldn't resort to proud self-interest, sort of every man for himself and I survive, see if you can type attitude. Uh, help us to forget about ourselves, to humble ourselves, uh, to humbly look for how we can uh, lovingly care for our brothers and sisters. Uh, even if we're not able to physically gather together, as often as we might like. And we pray, Father, in the uh, medium and longer term uh, that you would help us to keep meditating on these truths and that you would increasingly make us a community uh, in which we watch ourselves ruthlessly for pride and watch one another lovingly for wandering.
that we might be uh, have that wonderful experience of being a community in which we truly love and care for one another. Uh, to the glory of our God. Amen.